Hello and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Asia Darbinian and I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. I have a pleasure today of speaking with Stepan Astorian. Dr. Astorian is the William Sorian Director of the Armenian Studies Program at the University of California, Berkeley, and an adjunct associate professor in its Department of History. His teaching at the undergraduate and graduate levels includes, among others, Armenian history, Caucasian history and politics, comparative genocides, and the transition from the Ottoman Empire to the Turkish Republic. His publications deal with the origins of the Armenian genocide, post-Soviet Armenia, the evolution of the Armenian diaspora, and various facets of the Armenian-Azerbaijani antagonism. Dr. Asturian is a member of the Executive Committee of the Institute of Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies UC Berkeley, and is on the academic boards of a number of organizations, including the Zorian Institute. Today, we are here to discuss the volume titled Collective and State Violence in Turkey, the Construction of a National Identity from Empire to Nation State, edited by Stepan Asturian and Raymond Gevorkian. Uh, it will be published in August 2020. Hello, Dr. Asturian. Thank Hello. you for taking time to talk with us about this forthcoming book. You are welcome. My pleasure. So uh, why don't we start with an overview of this extensive volume? How did you and uh, Ramon Gevorkian come up with this idea of publishing a work focusing specifically on uh, practices of collective and state violence in Turkish state and society? And more importantly, why was it significant to look at mass violence in Turkey in over such a long term? Uh, we have to give credit where uh, credit is due. Uh, the idea of this volume came from uh, various uh, conversations over the phone uh, with Mr. Cook and Sarkisian, who is uh, the president of the Zorian Institute, and uh, was concerned with the spread of violence, you know, in the Middle East towards various minorities, in particular uh, Christians, but not only uh, just Christians. Right. And uh, along the way, uh, you know, uh, we agreed to do a volume precisely dealing with uh, uh, violence. And um, our idea uh, was that we have to take a very broad look at this ethics. Hmm? Mm -hmm. uh, move uh, of course, cover the Armenian case, and there are several chapters dealing with Armenians, uh, uh, as you could uh, see, uh, but take a more uh, a broader uh, perspective, and uh, the goal was to try to make sense of what has been going on, uh, because obviously, uh, you know, it was clear that this seems to be a recurrent phenomenon, repetitive repetitive phenomenon in uh, late Ottoman and uh, modern Turkish history. Hmm? Uh, so we tried to find uh, the appropriate people uh, who could write uh, various chapters uh, on uh, various uh, groups 
Kurds, Alevis, uh, Yazidis, and so on, Greeks. Uh, we had some trouble finding some scholars. Uh, the most surprising thing for me was uh, the difficulty we had to find uh, somebody to write the chapter uh, on the Greeks. Uh, despite several attempts uh, with Greek scholars, uh, scholars of Greek, Greece who are not Greek, uh, it didn't work out. And then, uh, happily enough, uh, Mr. George Shirinian, who works at uh, the Zorian Institute, uh, agreed to uh, write the uh, chapter on the Greeks. Uh, the second difficulty was the Yazidis. Uh, there isn't a very broad scholarship about them. Uh, we contacted some people, but then through contacts, uh, we could find somebody who wrote a, a very, very interesting uh, chapter on the Yazidis. So the goal was to be as inclusive as possible. Hmm? Uh, and I believe uh, we probably achieved that compared with uh, other existing books. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Um... It is uh, really extensive, <laughs> and that was actually going to be my next question about the methodology that you chose for compiling this uh, volume, right? Because it uh, has not only the case studies that you mentioned, and which are very important because they are uh, reflecting on a lot of cases uh, during a long period of time, but the volume also includes topical research. So um, could you also talk a little bit about these two different aspects of the volume and who are the contributors to those um, pieces and why you decided to include them? What's the significance of those? Yes, as uh, you noticed, uh, there is a, a broad array of scholars, but uh, let me start first with the gist of your question. Uh, when we had to conceptualize the volume, you know, uh, uh, there were several ways of approaching things. But uh, the, the good idea, I think, uh, the right approach is to combine uh, case studies with analytical uh, reflections, you know. Uh, and uh, that's what uh, we try to do, Raymond and I, in this uh, volume. So have many, many case studies on all the cases of violence uh, we know of. Uh, perhaps uh, the violence against leftists in the uh, 1980s after the coup d'etat uh, you, you know, could have been covered, but I believe outside that we have just about uh, everything. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the goal was to bring in uh, some scholars who have devoted their lives to uh, Ottoman and Turkish studies. Uh, people like Hamid Bozarslan in Paris, uh, Hans Lukas Kisser, Etienne Copo. Uh, and uh, each one of these uh, established scholars, senior scholars, of course, brought um, his uh, lengthy uh, knowledge, experience of uh, Ottoman Turkish history, and also different approaches to the issue. For example, Etienne Kopo is uh, uh, somebody who is fond of psychoanalysis, typically French approaches of people trained in the 1970s, 
Hamid Bozarslan is a sociologist, so his approach is uh, quite uh, different. Uh, and uh, Hans Lukas Kisser is a historian who also takes a broader perspective, you know, uh, and focuses in this article on the role of religion, among others. Okay. And uh, in the afterword that I wrote, uh, of course, I relied on some of their findings and on the uh, case studies uh, to cover about uh, 190 years of violence uh, in the Ottoman Empire and modern uh, Turkey from the 1830s to almost the present. Right. And um, in that afterword that you kindly shared with me, uh, you talk about the cases of violence documented in this volume by pointing out uh, certain main characteristics, I believe there were five of them, uh, that these of these very diverse instances of collective violence. So could you talk a little bit more about these characteristics of violence in Turkish state? Yeah, well, uh, it's good uh, that I printed out uh, some of that uh, lengthy um, afterward. Uh, what is uh, most striking is uh, the, uh, you know, the diversity of the targets. You know, it's uh, outright uh, amazing. Uh, where, you know, a lot of uh, people who are Armenian and so on uh, uh, tend to think, you know, they have heard about uh, the Syriacs, Assyro-Chaldeans, a little bit about the Greeks. Uh, so it, uh, they tend to view the issue only in terms of uh, Islam versus non-Muslim religion. Right. Yeah, uh, it's as if uh, that, that's where it stops. And uh, now I established a short list of uh, some of the targets of the violence. In alphabetical order, we have Alevi Kurds, Alevi Turks, Armenians, uh, the generic terms Assyrians, you know, that includes Assyro-Chaldeans, Syriacs, and so on. Greeks, Jews, leftists, Sunni Kurds, uh, Yazidis, uh, and so on. And uh, uh, these categories, of course, uh, can uh, be combined uh, in various configurations. So mm -hmm. I tried to establish uh, what I call the various axes of violence, you know, uh, various structures mm -hmm. of violence. Uh, the first one is along the divide uh, Muslim non-Muslim, which is the common one, you know, when people uh, think about it. Uh, uh, Turkish violence against Armenians, Assyrians, Greeks, Jews, Kurdish violence against Armenians, and mainly Turkish, but also Muslim Kurdish violence against Yazidis. But it doesn't stop there. There is also a second axis, religious, but that axis is denominational. It's not Christian against uh, versus Muslims. Uh, it's Sunni Muslims versus non-Sunni Muslims. Okay. Uh, for example, Turkish violence against Alevis, uh, you know, is a part of this axis. Uh, the third axis is uh, ethnic, uh, and it characterizes, for example, Turkish violence against the Kurds, 
be they Sunni Kurds or Alevi Kurds. And the final axis is uh, uh, basically uh, political, uh, mainly uh, right-wing violence against uh, leftists and also vice versa. Uh, and uh, the main point is that these, what I call these axis of violence, can be combined in into uh, various con uh, uh, configurations. For example, a leftist Alevi curve could be victimized as a leftist, could be victimized as an Alevi, could be victimized as a curve, or could be victimized as a combination of all three uh, characteristics. Uh, so uh, the, this is the broad uh, uh, picture, you know, uh, that uh, one comes up with after uh, studying these cases of violence. The, there is a second characteristic of Turkey uh, mm -hmm. violence in uh, the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. I believe you it, mentioned the continuity, right? It's okay. remarkable continuity. I mean, there, there are almost no decades. Mm -hmm. I could barely find, I believe, two decades where there is no uh, massive violence against a targeted group. Two right. decades over more than 150 years. Every single decade, you know, you have uh, targeted groups, uh, and uh, that's unusual. We all know that the modern state tends to, uh, uh, the birth of the modern state is often characterized by violence. That's nothing new. Uh, but here we have a process that is uh, continuous. Okay. Uh, and uh, keeps going, you know, uh, keeps going. It, it's not that it has ended at some point, you have a consolidated state and there is no problem. Uh, no, and uh, it is very much likely to continue, I would say, even though as a historian I am not Nostradamus, you know, uh, but uh, I can easily uh, see the Without from the that. information that we have already. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, why do, can I predict that? Uh, for a very simple reason, because the, the, some of the key problems faced by the Turkish state uh, and its underlying ideology, value system, uh, mentality, and so on, those problems are not solved. You know, right. They are only addressed through violence. The Kurdish okay. problem, uh, the viewing the Alevis as uh, borderline uh, Turks, bothersome, uh, you know, and so on, uh, not real Sunni Turks. Uh, all those problems are still there. So, they, they, you know, uh, there is no reason why uh, there won't be a continuation of uh, violence yeah, with uh, such uh, groups. And you also point uh, out that those cases are not uh, just spontaneous riots, right? They no, are... no, that's the third characteristic, uh, which is very interesting, actually. You know, you have in various countries, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, India in particular, uh, you have the phenomenon of uh, riots, some extremely violent, you know, and so on. Yes. 
uh, in the Even uh, Ottoman Empire and uh, modern Turkey, uh, and that's the third characteristic of these collective and state violence, uh, it's that there is no uh, collective violence without state involvement. The state is always there, and in most of the cases, when I say most, almost all of them, with the exception perhaps of two, uh, the Dersim uh, mm -hmm. devastation of the 1930s was mostly military. Uh, so in almost all of those cases, it's the state that is able to uh, uh, use various segments of the population to target uh, a given uh, group. Hmm? Right. It can be Jews in Thrace in the 1930s, it can be Greeks uh, in Istanbul in the 1950s, you know. Uh, it's not uh, Peter and Joe and uh, Tom, you know, who decide to attack by themselves eh, a given target. The state is always there. So, Thus, the title of the volume, Collective and State Violence, mm -hmm. because it's uh, literally uh, almost impossible to separate the two adjectives uh, or, you know, from one another. Uh, that's a key characteristic uh, of uh, violence uh, in the Ottoman Empire and a modern uh, Turkey. And it smoothly goes to the fourth one, because you mentioned state, and the fourth characteristic, I believe, is about the collective participation. Yeah, it's collective <laughs> participation, which means uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon, because uh, assuming there is any feeling of guilt, uh, the, the guilt, uh, uh, and uh, that's something to be discussed, uh, uh, Actually, uh, Etienne Copeau addresses that issue, but uh, let's leave it aside. Uh, you see, you are um, collectivizing uh, responsibility. Hmm? Right. And assuming there is guilt, you are collectivizing also the guilt. Hmm? Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, there is a phenomenon that is uh, quite interesting in many instances which is that uh, people who participate in that violence, at least some of them benefit from the violence. Hmm? Right. Take over shops, houses, fields, uh, can loot. Uh, it's a real, uh, uh, there is a benefit. And uh, I have heard over the past few years, to my utmost surprise, because I have worked quite a bit on the uh, Hamidian so-called massacres, uh, scholars coming and uh, telling that uh, in their minuscule little case study here, they couldn't find any evidence that the state was involved. It was uh, kind of like riots uh, here, uh, riots there. Uh, now, these are surprising riots that can last for almost a full year in dozens and dozens of locations. Throughout the empire. And we have throughout, 
yes, Asiatic Turkey, as it used to be called in the 19th century by uh, uh, Western uh, uh, scholars. Uh, and, uh, you know, those riots, uh, it's very bizarre for uh, somebody like me. Uh, they tend to last a very short period of time, a day or two. They start with a signal, they end up with a bugle signal suddenly. And all that seems to be happening magically, you know? Okay. So there, I have heard that latest uh, fantasy in the field. Um, I, I have seen quite a few of those, I can assure you. You are young, I am getting older. Over the past 40 years, I have heard and seen all of them. Uh, one of the phenomena I think that is extremely interesting uh, it's not fully addressed in the volume is uh, the continuity of uh, violence among the people who benefit from it there is now new research as you know uh, you can find it uh, uh, showing that some of the people involved in the 95, 96 massacres were also key players in the Armenian genocide. Later on, yes. In this region, that region. Uh, so what I wanted, you know, I digressed a little bit, uh, went to this Hamidian uh, news story. Uh, it wasn't a total uh, digression. Uh, what uh, uh, I meant to say is that there is a culture uh, of, of a predatory state that facilitates this type of behavior of looting, of people benefiting. Hmm? Right. And uh, it's uh, even inscribed in uh, Turkish sayings, you know. Madenki uh, Ermenisin, Vermelisin, which also has a sexual uh, dimension, you know, uh, uh, it is just okay to uh, loot uh, these, uh, I will call them inside outsiders or internal Yabanjis. Enemy within, yeah. Yeah, uh, So that culture is also uh, fascinating uh, because it is long lasting. Uh, you know, similar thing took place in Uganda, for example, under Idi Amin Dada against uh, especially Indians, you know, who fought the capitalist class there. But in the case of Turkey, is a recurrent pattern over more than a century. You see it in the 95-96 massacres. You see it in the Adana massacres. You see it in the looting of the Jews in Thrace. You have the Varlek Verdisi, that special tax during the Second World War, right. essentially looting the wealth, you know, uh, of non-Muslims. You see it in the pogroms against the Greeks in the mid-1950s. And that is also a very clear, uh, interesting pattern. Right. And because you mentioned all these important factors, uh, another very interesting subject that you touch upon in this afterward uh, was that um, you mentioned a number of structural causes or the deep 
causes um, of the violence affecting large segments of the population in Turkey. For example, you mentioned the widespread prejudice and racism in the society or the CUP and Kemalist regimes, fascist and uh, totalitarian character. Would you speak a bit more about these, especially since, I mean, I mentioned these two since he seems to be also a topic right now discussed in uh, the US on daily basis. Um, but you mentioned uh, several very important aspects that um, if you don't mind, uh, would be very yes, interesting to discuss. Uh, there are too many of them for our own good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let me just mention a few of them that I believe are extremely uh, important. Uh, and uh, what is also very important in those cases is the continuity again. Right. I view, uh, uh, and I am not the only one, uh, the failure of the Tanzimat ideas, that is the idea of Ottoman, we are all Ottomans, whether you are an Armenian Christian, Greek, uh, Jew, and so on. Now, the sense of civic citizenship. Hmm? It doesn't matter. You are blonde-haired, uh, you are Jewish, you know, you are tall, you are small. We are all hmm, Ottomans. The reaction against that was massive. And it came in the name of what? The Mileti Hakime, you know, eh? the dominant uh, ethno-religious religious community. You go to the Kemalist period, I mean, the Young Turk period is blatant. Is, uh, you, you know, you have the idea of race emerging, Urk, very clearly, and there is no more room for uh, Armenians, this and that. There is an imaginary Turkish race hmm, that is mobilized. But, uh, you know, uh, artificial things are very difficult to impose, and... Uh, the key characteristic uh, during that imperial transition to a nation state, which wasn't absolutely clear at first for the young Turks, I believe that up to 1916-17, they still hoped to save the empire. You see, mm -hmm. uh, I am not one of those who says that when the, you know, the young Turks arrived, they were already envisioning some kind of a Turkish republic for the Turks. No, I think their goal was to maintain what was left of the empire. But by 1917, with the British moving all over the place, you know, it was absolutely clear that the idea of empire, you know, is uh, essentially gone. Uh, so it was a slow process, but they, they laid the foundation for it. And the foundation was essentially, to put it in crude terms, a Turkey for Turks. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, that idea, again, it's that, uh, you know, we might have some uh, non-Turks here, but they are not, they won't be equal. Hmm? That idea is then um, very beautifully expressed during the Kemalist period by some Kemalist ideologues, uh, uh, I don't know where I have those quotations, but they are very telling, uh, you know, where uh, those Kemalist ideologues are saying basically uh, the key thing uh, for, for Turks is the hegemonic principle. Hmm? 
the Turk has to dominate. Uh, it's ironic that the theme of uh, domination appeared in the news uh, this yes. past few yes, days. Yes, that's, that's why it's reading this afterward was very eye-opening yeah. how history connects to present-day development. Yeah, uh, uh, the Turk uh, has to uh, dominate. Uh, I give citations of Ahmed Cevdet Pasha after the Tanzimat uh, and then take that up to the Turkish period uh, with those ideologues who lay the foundation for the long-lasting ideology of the Turkish Republic. That is, whether you have a leftist, a rightist, uh, or a Mr. Erdogan in charge, hmm? with an Islamist band, you know, uh, that principle is always there. What varies is the degree to which you bring in religion in the mix. Hmm? Right. Yeah. That's, that's why you're mentioning the difference of sort of worsening the situation. Yeah, so we moved from the established, you know, they realized by the late 1960s and 70s it was open, that they just couldn't cover up the religious dimension of identity. So uh, this was the time of something called the Turkish Islamic synthesis. Hmm? Mm -hmm. That is, Turkish identity is that synthesis of ethnicity, race, and Islam, okay? Uh, both of which justified domination, of course. Hmm? Yes. Okay. There is no sense of civic citizenship. I mean, there is no place for Armenians, Greeks, Jews, uh, Alevis in that uh, synthesis. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened between the 1970s and uh, uh, the second part of Mr. Erdogan's regime is a, a beautiful evolution. It's a move towards the truth of things. You see, uh, now what we are dealing today is not the Turkish Islamic synthesis, it's the Turkist Islamist synthesis. Hmm? Mm -hmm. That is, Turkism and Islamism now have been, uh, have coalesced hmm? In the ideology of Mr. Erdogan, you can even see it in foreign policy with an attempt at reasserting Turkish domination over areas of the former Ottoman Empire, starting with Syria for national security reasons, of course, northern Iraq, penetration in, in uh, Lebanon today, right. and the most fantastic one, activities also in Libya. Hmm? Okay. So what we are seeing is uh, Mr. Erdogan returning as a kind of uh, Ottoman Sultan. He admires Abdul Hamid, by the Openly, way. Does. Yeah. Uh, and he is asserting domination over the Sunni Muslim world. Uh, so first key element, I would say, uh, the failure of uh, civic citizenship hmm, uh, mm -hmm. to take root in Turkey is extremely uh, important uh, phenomenon. And the second one is domination as the central feature of the national self. Hmm? Mm -hmm. 
both inside Turkey, hmm, the mm-hmm. Turk dominates. Uh, uh, the other ones, they can live there, but they should know their place. Mm-hmm. They should obey. And they better do so, actually. Uh, now that idea of domination also is uh, spreading to the surrounding regions hmm, with Mr. Uh, in a very active way with uh, Mr. Erdogan's uh, new uh, foreign policy. Uh, so that's one uh, long-lasting, I would say, uh, pattern. And um, because you mentioned this earlier, and now we are talking also about the present and possibly even future policies of Turkey, one of the aspects you're talking about uh, is that, uh, and I quote, any collective sense of guilt is all but non-existent in Turkey. Um, So how, how important this Uh, aspect, this factor is both in the past and present policies of Turkish state? Uh, Maybe uh, uh, Etienne Coco uh, might uh, have a slightly different view. Uh, Maybe uh, open expression of guilt is inexistent, Mm -hmm. non-existent. That, that is absolutely clear, except perhaps uh, uh, among uh, some uh, very liberal, westernized intellectuals. Hmm? Right. And uh, once they uh, realized what has happened, among some Kurds. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, a new approach emerged. Uh, it was the idea of a, a dialogue. You know, we are gonna uh, help the Turks. You know, it's incumbent on Armenian scholar to convince them that something happened. Hmm? Yeah, start the dialogue. We have to do our job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Critical scholars participate participated in that task. Uh, uh, you know, you have critical scholars and you have uh, non-critical scholars. Uh, you have nationalists and you have really de- beautifully detached scholars. So a group of people uh, supported in the Armenian media, among other places, uh, uh, you know, joined the bandwagon. Uh, supposedly, Turkey had changed. I remember a very senior scholar telling me at a conference that, Stefan, you know, it's guaranteed in 2015 Erdogan will make a gesture. I said, absolutely, it's certain, you know, no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, and elephants will fly also in 2015. Um, They didn't. They didn't. Uh, in the meanwhile, when you uh, raise questions about those hopes, okay, you are immediately branded as a, you know, extremist, maybe nationalist, who knows, God forbid, you know. 
you know what? The proof is in the pudding. Hmm? Uh, now there is nothing. Hmm? Uh, all the universities, with the exception perhaps of one, are under full control of Mr. Erdogan. Hmm? Dozens of deans have been clear, you know, the state has taken full control of everything. Uh, and uh, of course, there were very nice people in Turkey, but the only problem, you know, is that most of them are located in Istanbul, a few, very few in Ankara. But go to Trabizond, try to start a dialogue there about the Armenian genocide. Hmm? Uh, you see? Uh, go elsewhere. So, uh, all of these long story uh, to uh, say that uh, uh, one of the uh, problems is the way the Turkish population has been indoctrinated hmm, over yeah, decades and decades from early childhood on. Uh, uh, and uh, when you grow up in that system, had I grown up in that system, it is very much likely that I would think as they do. Hmm? Uh, now, to return to the real question, uh, which was the problem of guilt. I haven't forgotten that one. Why am I mentioning all of this? I am mentioning all these long stories about uh, guilt, absence of guilt, uh, dialogue, and so on. Because uh, my sense is that um, the virulent uh, uh, prejudice and racism, in particular against Armenians, hmm, right. openly expressed, I mean, it's, uh, uh, there, there is no problem, uh, is also a mechanism to justify and to assuage, to moderate possible underlying feeling of guilt. guilt. Hmm? I mean, domination the over the emotions and feelings and yeah. thoughts. Uh, of you, the... you know, of course, uh, there was no genocide, but you know, they really deserved what they got. Uh, I mean, these are really nasty people these Armenians. Hmm? Uh, you find it in Ataturk's uh, comments about uh, Armenians that, uh, you know, uh, it's not Turks who massacred Armenians. If you listen to him, I mean, the Turks have been, it's a Muslim uh, millet, they have been persecuted by Armenians. So there are many uh, psychological mechanisms uh, in political psychology that are being used, okay, to precisely prevent any kind of underlying feeling of guilt hmm, from emerging and function. Hmm? Okay, uh, that's my view about uh, the uh, issue of collective guilt. guilt. And the typical pattern, I believe you studied uh, with uh, 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 Professor Taner Akcham. Hmm? Yes. Uh, and I am sure uh, at uh, Clark University, uh, you must have taken classes about other genocides. 
one of the key characteristics of Cox that you find in many genocides is that the genocidaire, the, 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 the group committing the genocide, hmm? blames the victim. Blames the victim, but also feels, feels victimized. Yes, the fear. Uh, first. They feel victimized. It's terrible. I mean, if you listen to Hitler or his surroundings, I mean, they have been victimized by those Jews, you know? Well, first, it's right justifying the mobilization of ordinary people by fear yeah. and future so, victimization, so, and later justifying the actions by victimizing that's themselves. That. So that's one part of my afterwork that deals with these psychological mechanisms, you know, right. uh, relying on various approaches uh, in the field uh, to explain how this issue is uh, manipulated or at the very least managed, you know. Uh, so that is indeed a very uh, important feature, which precisely makes uh, attempted dialogue on a large scale uh, uh, quite meaningless overall. I am not saying dialogue with, uh, you know, highly educated people who know what happened right. and... Uh, are open, you know, to discussion, are decent people, and so on. Okay. But... Collectively. Collectively. I'm talking large scale. Hmm? Okay. Uh, go to Harput. Go to Aintab today. Try to have a dialogue about the Armenian genocide. Hmm? Let's see whether you return. Okay. Uh, so uh, I have a particular, uh, how can I say, uh, I have some reservations uh, towards uh, fantasies, uh, but those fantasies in our field are also used to position oneself as broad-minded uh, and so on. But uh, the beauty of history is that uh, sometimes you can test fantasies and they fail, you see. Yeah. Well, the beauty of scholarship also is that um, people are allowed to have uh, different ways of explaining. Absolutely. And I guess that's why we have all those conversations. And if we didn't, probably we wouldn't think more on these issues that we're discussing now. Absolutely. You are absolutely right. Uh, one of the things, however, which is uh, interesting is that in some cases in history, you can test whether you were right. Hmm? That was the point I was making. I'm not blaming these things. Uh, well, you know, I think my own way, you think your own way, other people can think their own way. But uh, there are circumstances in history where uh, you can test whether it's gonna your way of thinking was... Okay. Uh, accurate uh, and uh, you know this is one of those cases yeah. well this conversation is uh, going wonderful but we have to <laughs> uh, wrap uh, up uh, so yep. I guess one of the last questions that uh, I would ask uh, since we talked about scholarship in general so who is the targeted audience for this publication? And what do you expect them to take away? Uh, again, I will be very liberal here. Uh, people can take away whatever uh, 
they can take away from the perspective uh, of uh, their interests, their ideologies, uh, their intellectual inclinations, and so on. Uh, now, to start at a very basic level, uh, maybe some people will use the book because they are interested in the Yazidis, no? And there aren't tons of uh, publications about the Yazidis, so, you know, maybe they'll have a look on the Yazidi chapter. Hmm? Uh, others might be interested in the Kurds or Alevis. There are two chapters on the Alevis or the Armenians, several chapters. You know, they will have a look at that. Maybe you have people who are Ottomanist or specialists of modern Turkey who uh, will read the whole thing because, you know, uh, their interest is not just limited in you know, one group or the other or one phenomenon. Yeah. Now, there is a chapter, for example, about the rhetoric uh, of uh, uh, victimization, uh, of internal enemies, external enemies, by a young scholar in the Netherlands. Hmm? Mm -hmm. This is, of course, of interest in political psychology, uh, in the history of mentalities, and so on. So somebody can read that chapter hmm, without being an, an Ottomanist hmm, or a specialist mm -hmm. of Turkey. Uh, I think also the book will be of interest uh, of course, to Armenians, you know, who have an interest in uh, understanding their history. Uh, not too many of them have that, uh, but uh, it can be of interest also to people who deal uh, with things like, uh, let's call it generically, ethnic conflict hmm? Hmm. or genocide. Uh, there was a field in sociology uh, called race relations, hmm? and so on. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I think the audience can be, could be very diverse. Hmm? Just as how diverse and extensive the volume is. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, maybe the book which is a very thick book, I believe, I don't know, it's, uh, it should be around 750 pages or something, uh, uh, can be used to, to teach an advanced undergraduate course, you know, uh, on uh, Ottoman and modern Turkish history, or some chapters can be used for graduate seminars on more topical issues, you know, so there are various combinations and, uh, uh, you know, if it serves that purpose, then uh, we have contributed a small thing to uh, uh, Ottoman and Turkish history. We'll see. Inshallah, we'll see. <laughs> right. Well, this sounds great. I'm looking forward to reading the book and hopefully one day using it for teaching as well. Uh, Dr. Asturian, thank you very much for being with us virtually today and uh, talk to you next time when another publication is out. <laughs> well, I thank you and it was a pleasure. Thank you.